Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Albert, the intern, has posted some fascinating stories in the highlight carousel atop of richardserrett.com. There's a step-by-step guide on lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming is, is one of the most extraordinary experiences you can have as a, as a human being. Imagine being awake within a dream and being able to consciously interact with, with it just as you interact in the real world. Everything is saturated with color and, and vibrantly alive and it feels far more real than waking life often does. Uh, so you'll want to check that out. It's a step-by-step guide on how to lucid dream. Uh, there's also a rather disturbing expose called Insurge Intelligence, which is a new crowdfunded investigative journalism project which breaks the exclusive story of how the United States intelligence community funded, nurtured, incubated Google as part of a drive to dominate the world through control of information. Seed funded by the uh, NSA and the CIA, Google was merely the first among a, a plethora of private sector startups co-opted by U.S. intelligence to retain information superiority. Those are just two of the stories you can read in the highlight carousel, again, at top, atop of uh, richardserrett.com. And while you're there, don't forget to register, become a member uh, of richardserrett.com. You'll gain access to special member-only areas, including access to the past show archives. And uh, Eric is busy posting past shows and uploading the audio for those shows, going back all the way to the summer of 2012. So very soon, members can go back and listen to three years' worth of The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Not sure if you were able to catch a glimpse of the most recent blood moon, which of course is the third in the uh, Tetrad. We are expecting one more. Um, Most of the eastern U.S. and Canada were sort of shut out of this uh, particular blood moon in the sky uh, because of uh, cloud cover and so forth. Um, The current uh, Tetrad has become the focus of speculation in some circles because its relationship uh, because of its relationship to the coming of the end of the world. There are two major blood moon references in scripture. Uh, they're pretty similar, uh, but in different books. Uh, in Acts, Acts chapter 2 verse 20, it says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord. Well, we're going to dive into end times prophecy right now, a field of study also known as Christian eschatology, which means uh, the events leading up to the end of history. What does the Bible say about the end times, the period known as the Tribulation or Jacob's Troubles, the rise of the Antichrist, the the Battle of Armageddon, and the Second Coming? My guest is an artist, human rights activist, New York Times best-selling author, internationally recognized speaker and recognized expert on Bible prophecy and the Middle East. He is also an ongoing contributor to WorldNet Daily. He's been featured on or has written for The Glenn Beck Show, The Mike Huckabee Show, The Dennis Miller Show, Chicago Public Radio, and Jewish Voice Today. Joel Richardson is the author of the provocatively titled When a Jew Rules the World, Is the Return of Jesus Closer Than You Think? And the director of the documentary End Times Eyewitness, Israel, Islam, and the Unfolding Signs of the Messiah's Return. Hey, Joel, how are you? I'm doing very good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you hanging with us. Uh, As we um, head into the Easter and uh, Passover season, uh, let's, uh, well, first of all, I want to ask you about the title, When a Jew Rules the World, because obviously that's a pretty provocative title, and if people don't know you or, or, you know, what you're about and they see that title, 
Um, you know, obviously, that could cause uh, some consternation with some people. Explain what that title means. Yeah, well, I was looking at uh, many of the you know conspiracy theories with regard to the Jewish people. They control the world. The world Zionist uh, conspiracy is controlling all things. And my idea was to really take that idea and sort of throw it back in their face and say, yes, in fact, there is a Jew who will rule the world. Uh, the Jews do not control the world right now, but there is a time when uh, God himself will return in the form of, of Jesus, and from Jerusalem he will rule the nations uh, on the restored throne of David. And so it's really just laying out the uh, the biblical story of, of biblical hope, that which all the prophets are pointing to. Talk to me a little bit about the historical uh, evidence for Jesus Christ's resurrection. Because, you know, a lot of historians who started out as uh, skeptics and debunkers and uh, academics, people like C.S. Lewis, who who set out to disprove this as an historical fact, quickly became converts. Yeah, the biblical story of Jesus, it is the most attested story in all of ancient history. In fact, I mean, it is the single most attested story probably in human history. And so you begin with the reliability, of course, of the New Testament documents. And once you establish that these are, in fact, reliable documents, then we have the testimony of multiple eyewitnesses who claim that they were with Jesus, that they saw him uh, during the time of his crucifixion, and then, of course, after his resurrection, and, and even beyond that, actually saw him ascend uh, into the clouds as, as he was taken up to heaven. And then you have these uh, you know, dozen or so men, uh, all of which, except for really one, uh, who died communicating to people that story, that Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of the prophets, and of course he, he died and he, he rose again and ascended to heaven. And so either one, uh, you know, they were dying for a lie, all of them, or what they claimed to see and and behold was, in fact, something that they thought was uh, worthy of dying for. Yes, it is interesting that the the, the disciples uh, started out really uh, as debunkers uh, when they first learned about uh, Jesus' resurrection. They were the ones that uh, were skeptical, and uh, they were rather cowardly initially. Uh, But then, as you say... Uh, each of them, save for one, ended up being martyred and uh, refusing to, you know, recant that story. So one has to ask, you know, why would one be willing to be put to the sword or crucified for something that's that didn't happen? Uh, Joel Richardson is with us. He's an artist, human rights activist, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, let's provide a little bit of a primer on, uh, I guess, eschatology, uh, the uh, the uh, the last days of of history, uh, according to biblical prophecy. Uh, give us a kind of a timeline, how this I- is going to, to break out, I guess, would we begin with the, the tribulation or Jacob's troubles? Yes, uh, you know, according to the testimony of the biblical prophets, uh, the prophets, they repeatedly use the analogy of uh, a birth, which lead, you know, the birth pains which lead to a birth. And so when we're talking about that, the time of the birth pains, for anyone who is a you know a parent, you know that there's the initial Braxton Hicks contractions. These are sort of the preliminary contractions, and these are the events that Jesus describes uh, in the first half of this final 
seven-year period that uh, is introduced in Daniel chapter 9. And those first three and a half years, Jesus describes as a time of wars, and you have you know, plagues that break out across the earth, rumors of wars, and, and these series of events which he describes as the beginning of birth pangs. But then in the middle of this seven-year period, you have a profound event that takes place in Jerusalem, where the Antichrist, again, he comes in many different names and different books of the Bible, but this individual who has been a deceiver, and he deceived Israel into entering into some form of security agreement, he actually takes his seat on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and desolates the Jewish Temple. And from that point forward, you have uh, what Jesus and what the angel Gabriel himself, back in the book of Daniel, and then Jesus himself uh, playing off of this uh, Gabriel's words, says it will be a time of unparalleled uh, suffering and distress for the Jewish people, such as has not happened since there was a nation up until the end of time. So it's a very geographic-centric uh, uh, tribulation that takes place in Israel. Of course, there'll be tribulation all over the world. And this takes place for a period of three and a half years, which culminates with the return of the, the divine God-man, uh, returning from heaven to deliver uh, his people in their darkest hour from the gathering of the nations against Jerusalem. And uh, where does uh, Gog and Magog uh, come into this timeline? Well, you know, in the past 50-plus years, you've had a lot of teachers that have tried to say that Gog-Magog is a separate, distinct battle, that Gog is a different invader other than the Antichrist, that his armies are different armies other than the armies of the Antichrist. But in fact, I think it's really quite clear when you really look at the context of the Ezekiel 38-39, the oracle of Gog-Magog, that Ezekiel was really just telling the same story that all of the other prophets uh, were telling. And it's quite clear in the text, God himself says through Ezekiel, speaking to Gog, he says, Are you not the one? that I have spoken of by my former prophets. For many years they declared that in the last days I would bring you against my people Israel. And, you know, the story of the prophets, it's a very day of the Lord-centered story. It revolves around that final period. And, you know, you can't go anywhere in the prophets and find uh, the story of Gog-Magog. They're all talking about the invasion of the Antichrist. And really the natural conclusion is that Ezekiel uses a different term for the Antichrist. He calls him Gog, and it's a, it's a very broad prophecy which begins at the beginning of the seven years or sometime uh, before that, and it culminates with the return of Jesus. So it's a, it's a prophecy that actually envelops a fairly broad period of time. So just to clarify, uh, Joel, you're saying that uh, the battle of Gog Magog is is not a distinct battle from the final battle of Armageddon. They're really one and the same. Well, it culminates with the battle of Armageddon, but yeah, we're dealing with the same characters, and it's actually really clear when you look at the conclusive, the concluding verses in chapter thirty-nine, as a direct result of the destruction of Gog and his armies. God says several things take place. He says, "No longer will I allow my name to be blasphemed." He says, all the nations will know that I am the Lord, God of Israel. He says that Israel will come to know that I am the God of Israel. And he says he will pour out his spirit on Israel. 
course, we know that takes place when Jesus returns, according to Zechariah 12. They will look upon the one they have pierced, and every eye will see him. And, uh, and then it says, and all of the captives will return to Israel, but he will leave none left among the nations. And then, of course, you have the feast that is described at the end of Ezekiel, where the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, are, the, the call goes out for them to feast upon the flesh of kings and warriors. Well, this is the exact same feast that's spoken of in Revelation 19, which is the quintessential passage in all of the Bible that describes the return of Jesus, clearly uh, referring to the same great feast. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, many uh, interpreters of prophecy, they've, they've broken Ezekiel's prophecy out as distinct, and the reason they did that is because the nations mentioned are clearly Middle Eastern nations. And many of these teachers have begun with this very Western-centric, Eurocentric perspective of prophecy. They begin with this assumption that the Antichrist is the Pope or he's going to come from Europe. And so when they come to this prophecy that's clearly very North African, Middle Eastern-centered, uh, they go, well, this must be a different invasion. Ah. And then they begin their, their process of trying to prove that. But Joe, well, let me jump in here. Uh, I apologize. I have to jump in, take a time out. We'll come back and we'll continue to discuss End Times with Joel Richardson. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Joel Richardson talking about uh, End Times. Revelation it's a tough book to wade through. I mean, unless you are, you know, well-versed in, in the Bible. Uh, you know, it's filled with so much symbology and, 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 and metaphor. It's so easy to be uh, sort of led astray or get off in the wrong direction. I mean, and, and you can, we hear so many alternative views of, in terms of, of end times, and, and you've pointed out some of the inconsistencies in interpretation and so forth. I mean, how, what is your foundation? I mean, how do you... How do you approach Revelation, for example? Yeah, well, you know, I have a very simple rule that I always encourage people, as they're approaching the Bible, they want to understand the end times. The first rule is you don't begin in the last book of the Bible. Uh, the book of Revelation, it really, as you said, it's filled with symbolism, uh, metaphor, and, all, and so forth. But all of this symbolism it draws from previous books. And so the book of Revelation, it's this, it's this grand crescendo, but you can't understand it unless you understand the foundation. And that is primarily found in the Old Testament prophets. And so before you can even approach the book of Revelation, you have to be thoroughly well-versed in the story that all the prophets are telling. And it's a very uh, Israel-centric, a very Jerusalem-centric and as I mentioned earlier, a very Day of the Lord-centric story, which is to say it's a story that ultimately revolves around the return of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom uh, on the earth from, from Israel. Once you understand that general story, then suddenly the prophets are opened up, suddenly they make profound sense, and then you can you know, sort of move from there uh, into the book of Revelation and the symbolism uh, begins to make much better sense. I, I've uh, had conversations, a number of conversations, with um, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn and, and uh, Carl Gallops, who's a, who's a good friend. Uh, you know, we've talked about uh, the mystery of the Shemitah, and we've talked about 
uh, the, uh, the the seven trumpets in in Revelation. We've talked about you know the blood moons and so forth. What to you are the most compelling, most powerful prophetic signs uh, being fulfilled on the earth today? There's there's many many that we could look at, but you know there's one passage in particular that I'd love to to highlight uh, to the listeners, and that's the prophecy of Daniel chapter eight. Now, if you, you know, you open up the Bible and you look at this prophecy, you have this story, uh, this vision that Daniel had. First of a ram with two horns, and he comes from Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And he butts out throughout the Middle East, and it says that he, he's victorious, and there's none that can stop him. Uh, and then after his grand military victory across the Middle East, this goat with one prominent horn sort of a unicorn goat, he leaps from, uh, from, the, from the west, and it, it, most translations say Greece, but the word there is actually Yavon, uh, which, biblically speaking, uh, speaks of that whole area of the Aegean Sea. It included much of modern-day Turkey. And so this goat comes from the west, and he crushes the ram that comes from Iran, and then uh, at that time the horn's broken off, and, um, and and his new empire, if you will, is broken up into four, and out of that comes the Antichrist. Well, everyone says that this is historical Medo-Persia, and then Alexander the Great, and I think that that, that those historical conflicts, they are a type uh, of the ultimate fulfillment, because if you actually look at the prophecy, once again, Gabriel the angel shows up, and he tells Daniel three times, extremely clear. He says, Daniel, listen, I'm going to tell you the meaning of the vision. It concerns the time of the end. It concerns the final period of indignation. And then once again, he says, it concerns the time of the end. And so if we take a consistent uh, futurist interpretation of the prophecy, I believe that it's speaking of a, an Iranian war, that Iran is about to butt out and it's, it's going to conquer much of the Middle East. And then I believe that there will be a, a massive Turkish, potentially a, a Turkish coalition or just a Turkish response, and Turkey will crush Iran. And I believe that's the next major uh, event that we're going to see unfold in the Middle East. And I tell you, uh, Richard, when you look at the geopolitics of the region, that chessboard of the Middle East, it absolutely makes sense. You know, Iran has its proxies. They virtually control southern Iraq, the government of Iraq. They control much of Lebanon through Hezbollah. They now control the southern border of Saudi Arabia through the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Uh, you know, they've got their players everywhere. And then Turkey, of course, their, their junkyard dog, if you will, is ISIS. Everyone, you know, wonders, well, who's pulling the strings behind ISIS? Well, Within the intelligence community, it's clear that Turkey is the primary uh, party that is giving logistical weapon support to ISIS. All of these young men coming from Europe and the United States, they're flowing through Turkey, and Turkey is using ISIS as its proxy, as its junkyard dog, in its regional battle against Assad, again, who is a puppet of Iran, uh, in Syria, as well as the Kurds. The Turks hate the Kurds as well as in their regional conflict with Iran. And I tell you that that those two regions throughout history, they've always been in conflict. And I believe we're about to see one final grand clash between those nations uh, before the return of Jesus. 
What about uh, Russia and, and China's involvement in, in, a, in a battle of Armageddon? Will they be drawn into the conflict? And what does the, the Bible, uh, biblical prophecies, uh, what are the clues? Well, I mean, it mentions the king of the north, that's Daniel 11, that's another name for the Antichrist, and it mentions that he's very upset because he hears news from the north and from the east. And, uh, and then you have the armies from the east, um, and I believe that, uh, and it, you know, as a result of that, he lashes out in a rage at many nations. I believe that Russia and China will be involved. I, I think that's probably the only direct mention we have of them is just, you know, the, the, this, this uh, reason for alarm that comes from both the north and the east. Um, but apart from that, you know, the, uh, again, the biblical story is a very Jerusalem, Israel, and Middle Eastern-centered story. Uh, but clearly these nations will play a role in the days ahead. They're simply too significant to be ignored. As you say, it's, it's, the, uh, the end times narrative is, is sort of Middle Eastern centric. But what will be happening in the rest of the world during, you know, the, the reign of the Antichrist, the three and a half years before the, the second coming? What's going on, for example, here in North America? We, we hear, where we read about, uh, you know, the mark of the beast, and you will not be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. Sort that out for us. Yeah, well, you know, there's a few verses in the Bible that seem to indicate that the mark of the beast will be absolutely global. Um, the problem is the Bible frequently, Middle Eastern language is is very common for, for it to use hyperbole, and the Bible itself uses hyperbole. You know, it talks about how the Roman Empire controlled the whole world, you know, in those days, a command went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taken a census of. Well, we know it wasn't the whole world. It was just the Roman Empire and uh, you know, multiple, multiple examples that we could point to. So, you know, because of the fact that the Antichrist will have nations that he will be going to war with until the very end, Daniel 9:27 says, wars are decreed until the end. The presence of wars is proof that there are... There are resistor militaries and thus resistor governments. And so while I think the Mark of the Beast will be uh, found in, in various nations throughout the world, I'm not confident that every single nation and every single person on the earth will be forced to either take it or die. I think there's going to be pockets of resistance throughout the nations. And I think outside of the biblical world, it's going to look different in every nation. You know, I think there'll be plenty of places to get away and you know, whether it be Siberia or Canada or, you know, different parts of the United States. And ultimately, we don't know. I mean, we really don't know. I I was speaking with an individual just recently. He claims that he's had clear visions of Iran and Russia working together to take out the United States along with various South American nations. He's convinced that there's going to be chemical warfare and an EM, multiple EMP attacks on the United States and, and an actual ground invasion of large parts of the country. Now, was that a vision from God? You know, we don't know, but I think if, you know, if we're, if we're believers, we need to be praying and interceding and crying out for mercy for our nations, no matter where we live. Um, but until that time comes, you know, we really don't know. Of course, we need to be prepared for all things. Are, are there any clues, or do you have any uh, uh, idea what this mark of the beast, what form it may take? Are we talking about biometrics, or, or what, what do you think it, 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 this mark of the beast might be? You know, it could be any number of things, and, and people have certainly looked at the various 
emerging technologies um, to talk about, you know, everyone will be forced to take this uh, without which they cannot buy or sell. But it may be something much simpler. When we look at Islamic Sharia law, um, we see that, you know, once the caliphate is established and people live under that Islamic law, it is the law of the land. And if you're a non-Muslim, you are subject to every form of persecution. And when you really look at the biblical story, the, the Bible says whoever takes the mark of the beast goes to hell. Well, you know, the mark of the beast is not some uh, loophole in the system. You know, people go to hell because they reject the free offer of God in Jesus Christ. You know, if they accept that, they go to heaven. This is not some loophole. It's not like a, a nerf tag, you know, football game. If, if you, you know, they can pin you down and give you the mark of the beast and whoop, you're going to hell. Um, it clearly must be some form of a creedal issue. It must be a, a statement of faith, if you will, an identification with a religious system uh, that causes someone to go to hell. And so personally, I look at the Shahada of Islam, which says there is no God other than Allah, and Muhammad is the final messenger of Allah, which perfectly fulfills the description of the theology of the Antichrist as described in 1 John chapter 2. It says this is the spirit of the Antichrist. It den he denies the Father and he denies the Son. And so I look at the Shahada, uh, the creed of Islam. You see people wearing it on their headbands throughout the radical groups as probably the closest thing to the mark of the beast uh, that we can look at you know, at this time. I think at that time, there will be probably a little bit more to it, uh, and it will be clear at that time, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be a retinal scan or, you know, something that, I don't think it has to be that far out. It certainly could, but I don't think it has to. Uh, if we could just take a couple minutes and, 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 and talk about um, the, the plight of Iraqi Christians uh, right now uh, who, who lived and worshipped in places like Mosul in, uh, in northern Iraq, or in Iraq, rather, for... 2,000 years is one of the oldest Christian communities anywhere, uh, driven out, uh, be, you know, being slaughtered by, by ISIS. Uh, the, um, the Assyrian Christians, the Chaldeans and Syriac Catholics and so forth. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on over there. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you know, I actually just came back from northern Iraq. We went to uh, visit the refugee camps. So when you're looking, you know, at a map of northern Iraq, Mosul, uh, that's ancient Nineveh, by the way, pretty much right there in the heart of northern Iraq, uh, that is the, the heart of the, the stronghold of ISIS uh, in that region. And just a little bit to the uh, southeast is the city of Erbil, and uh, that's about, I want to say, about 40 miles uh, away from Mosul. So we flew into the city of Erbil which is fairly stable right now. This is controlled by the Kurds, the Iraqi Kurds in the north. And um, and so in the city of Erbil, there's a massive mall that was under construction, and they never quite finished it, about four floors of just open concrete, uh, you know, building. And so as the Iraqi Christians had to flee ISIS, you know, they came to the Kurdish areas where, you know, ISIS didn't control. And so they've turned that thing into a giant... Uh, sort of an open-air hotel with just little sheetrock walls. They have kerosene heaters, and, you know, they're just living this uh, this life of day-to-day -day relying on the donations of various 
peoples around the world. And okay. with Joe, well, sorry, really I have to jump in here. I apologize. We'll take another time out. We'll continue to talk about the, the plight of the, the Assyrian Christians. On the other side, Joel Richardson. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Joel Richardson. Joel, we were talking about the plight of Assyrian Christians in, in northern Iraq. You were talking about how they've been uh, seeking shelter in this kind of this ramshackle um, mall in an area that's under the under Kurdish control. Yeah, so that's in the city of Rabil, and you know, just I mean, we sat with them, we prayed with them, but you know, you just have all of these Christians. They they lived in these cities. They had homes. They had businesses. We sat with a man named. Jamil, he owned uh, a manufacturing plant, and now here he is in his sixties. He's living in a, you know, a, a little box with his family, and there's no jobs, and and you know, so they have no idea of what their future is going to hold. It's just, you know, it truly is a devastating situation, and you know, it's not only the Christians. We visited with Muslims that weren't going along with the ISIS program, and and their lives equally devastated. In the north, we're up close to the border of Iran. There's the Yazidis. They're part of this sort of strange, ancient, dualistic religion. And I mean, just living in the mud, camping outside and below 30 degrees at night. And um, if if ever we've got over two million displaced peoples, if there's ever an opportunity for the church to be the church, is is right now in the nation of the northern areas of Iraq. It's just a horror show uh, over there. And I, I disheartened uh, here in Canada, the conservative government here wants to, uh, you know, to step up our contribution in airstrikes, extend those airstrikes into Syria and so forth, and not getting much support from the other uh, political parties, but uh, they have a majority, so it, that will go through. But what would you say to people out there who would say, well, that's not our fight? Well, I mean, in terms of fighting ISIS, I think it's the responsibility of all people, um, uh, you know, of... of that have have moral standards to stand up for the oppressed, the forgotten, the afflicted, the needy, and you know there's different geopolitical solutions being offered. Personally, I think we very cautiously should be arming the Kurds, but unfortunately, because of politics, you know, John McCain and, and Obama, they've been talking about wanting to arm the Free Syrian Army. I think the Kurds are the greatest uh, friends of the West right now. In fact, the Kurds have a saying, the Kurds have no friends but the mountains. And, you know, when when I was there as an American, and this is a rarity in the Middle East, in every market that I went to, the Kurds, if I wanted a piece of fruit or a piece of bread, they refused to take money. They would give it, they would give it to me because they are so happy that the Americans and the Western uh, allies are, are actually being friends with them. They're so used to being abused by the Arabs, by the Turks, by the Persians, by peoples throughout history, and uh, I think there's an opportunity right now with the Kurds to arm them, to supply them, and continue to uh, to you know bomb the various ISIS uh, strongholds. We're going to take another break here, and in just a minute, let's get the conversation going now, and then we'll we'll pick it up on the other side. But let's talk about some of the other uh, the other prophetic signs uh, that we are approaching the end times. Well, probably the biggest looming one is the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. Now, I believe that will come out of a period, again, of some sort of an agreement with a regional leader in Israel. Um, and there are, in fact, some profound signs uh, of the temple being rebuilt. I've talked to Muslim leaders that want to see the Jewish temple rebuilt. I've talked to leaders of the Orthodox Jewish community in Israel 
who actually want to convert the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount into the Jewish Temple. And, uh, you know, a lot of different ideas that a lot of people have never thought would be possible, uh, but they're being discussed right now. And uh, it doesn't, you know, necessarily mean that the mosque needs to be bombed or hit with a comet or something crazy. Uh, there's some solutions, options out there that are a little bit more realistic um, than many people have considered in the past. Has the has the uh, I've read reports where the the holy temple altar has already uh, been built. Maybe we can uh, talk about that as well when we come back. Joel Richardson, my guest here on the Conspiracy Show. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Joel Richardson is with us. Uh, what about the uh, the Holy Temple altar? There are reports that that has already been built, that they are sort of slowly assembling some of the component parts of the Third Temple. Is that true, that story? Yeah, you know, you've got this group, the uh, the Temple uh, the Temple Faithful Institute, or the Temple Institute there in Jerusalem, and they've been doing all sorts of things for years building all sorts of utensils and you know the altar and they're 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 very mobile i mean they are prepared uh if given permission to bring these things up onto the temple mount and begin sacrifices they don't even need the the temple itself the, you know the first thing they want to do is is carry out what's called the um the korban pasach that's the where they uh, slaughter the goat or i'm not sure if it's a goat or a lamb uh, it may be the uh, the scapegoat uh, that they that they sacrifice uh, on the Day of Atonement. I mean, these are some of the the initial steps that their the Orthodox Jewish community wants to carry out. Um, again, you know, when you look at the political situation, it seems like an impossibility right now. Such profound resistance from the Palestinians to any Jewish participation or prayers, even mere prayers on the Temple Mount. Uh, you know, last year I interviewed Rabbi Yehuda Glick. He's the uh, the very prominent red-headed uh, Temple Mount activist that goes up there and tries to bring Jews up onto the temple. Well, he was the target of an assassination attempt uh, just a, a few months back now. Uh, he was actually shot point-blank four times um, and, and uh, miraculously survived. He, I mean, he was shot in the neck, in the chest, in the stomach, and in the hand, and he made a, a miraculously quick recovery, and I'm sure he'll be right back up on the Temple Mount probably fairly soon, but he's just been working to allow Jews to get up there and pray, and uh, and, and simply because of that, 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 that rage and that hatred from the Palestinians, you know, they, they, they sought to snuff his life out. <clears throat> so it seems like an impossibility, but, you know, again, it seemed like an impossibility that the Jewish people who would reestablish themselves as a nation, that Hebrew, the ancient language, would be uh, rebirthed into the earth, become uh, spoken by millions of people. And so I think when we look at the scriptures, what will take place is an agreement where my guess is it will be a, you know, a two-state solution with the concessions that the city of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount, will be shared by both sides. And it's going to require some changes uh, on both sides. Both sides will be sort of forced into it, and I think that we're going to see some major regional shakeups as a result of some wars that will lead to both sides being willing to, to make the concessions necessary uh, to see that happen. 
Uh, I, I want to talk a, a little bit a little bit about the the characteristics of the the Antichrist, uh, and um, you know it says things like you know that uh, he will survive a mortal head wound, and uh, uh, talk to me a little bit about that, for example. That that's always intrigued me. What does that mean? Yeah, well, it actually says that the beast uh, will suffer a fatal head wound and come back. Now, the challenge with this is that the motif, the symbol of the beast in the Book of Revelation comes from Daniel chapter 7, where you have four beasts. Well, the beasts there, they, they represent an empire. They represent four different empires, but yea, also the emperor. You know, kingdoms, yea, kings. So it's both an individual but also an empire. And so in one sense, this, this fatal head wound of the beast, it could simply be the, the, the seeming death of an empire that then comes back and is raised to life or it could be an actual head wound and a false resurrection of a specific individual in the days ahead, or it could be both. Um, now, I begin with the idea that it will clearly be the revival of an empire, uh, because when you look at Revelation 17, it speaks of the seventh empire as coming back as an eighth. Personally, I believe that this is the, um, the death of the Islamic Caliphate, that controlled the Middle East for 1,400 years. It culminated with the Ottoman Caliphate, the Ottoman Empire, and that was abolished. The head of the beast was cut off. The office of caliph, that's the, the, the pope, president, and general of the Islamic world, if you will, uh, that, that was cut off in 1923, 1924 uh, by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, and I believe we're seeing the the beginning stages of the the rebirth, the resurrection of that empire right now, uh, again, which will, will fully take place after some of these wars pan out in the Middle East. Um, and then the leader of that empire very well could uh, undergo some sort of a fatal head wound. And there could be, I mean, clearly the false prophet, it says, will carry out lying signs and wonders to deceive the whole world. And so that's something that we very well uh, could see. Has there been more than one Antichrist? For example, some people see Hitler as an Antichrist. Others say Saddam Hussein was an Antichrist. Some even, you know, mention Napoleon or Kaiser Wilhelm. I mean, the lists go on and on. Stalin. Is there more than one Antichrist? (laughs) Yeah, um, you know, of course, the Bible says there are many, many Antichrists, even from the very beginning. But yet there is one Antichrist. So, yes, there are many Antichrists. Uh, little Antichrist, but there is one final man of sin, the son of perdition, uh, which is why I made the joke that it's Hillary Clinton. <laughs> oh, well, clearly not the man of sin, but um, uh, though, though having many of the characteristics, but um, but nevertheless, there will be an individual. And so, yes, you know, you could say Hitler or any of these individuals in history have been types or foreshadows. The greatest of which, of course, was Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, the um, second-century Seleucid rule, uh, king of the Seleucid Empire. Now, this is an, uh, something that has always perplexed me, Joel, and perhaps you can sort this out for me. The Antichrist has to convince, you know, the world that he is, or tries to convince, or manages to convince the world that he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah uh, for the Jews. He is, uh, he is. The Messiah for Christians. He is the the the, the Mahdi for the for Muslims. He is the um, is it the compassionate Buddha for for the Buddhists. How does one figure manage to convince all of these 
uh, different religious groups that he is their savior, their messiah. Uh, I don't think he has to at all. I think it's an assumption that people have read into the scriptures based on the hyperbole that every single person in the world will all submit to him. Um, I think the problem with that is that if, if he were all those things, the Muslims would never submit to him because, you know, Islam is clearly uh, resistant to all these other religions. So it, it's, there's no scenario that you could put out there that would work. And so they would not submit to him, yet the Muslims are the nations that surround Israel. So clearly it has to be a savior figure that will appeal to the Muslim world above everyone else. I don't believe that he'll be viewed as the Messiah of Israel. In fact, I think, as I said, the clearest, most significant type of the Antichrist in all of Scripture is Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was simply an evil, demonized Gentile ruler that uh, managed to uh, invade the land of Israel and, and destroy the Jewish temple. And so whether we're looking at Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the various Roman Caesars, Antiochus Epiphanes, they're all Gentile rulers. And the primary way that Satan throughout history has affected his purposes in the earth has been through pagan empires. And I believe in the last days it will be the, it will be the same. Now, the scriptures do say that they will trust this individual. He will be an individual that will be able to gain enough political capital to engage in a some sort of an agreement, a covenant with Israel, whereby they will trust his promises. It says that he will conquer marvelously through peace, that he will invade um, the various lands when they are at ease. He is a profound deceiver, but I don't believe that he'll be viewed as the Jewish Messiah or the, you know, the Buddha or the, the Maitreya or you know, any of these other things. I believe the end times will be far more messy, far more chaotic than we often would like to imagine and multitudes in the valley of decision, and those of us that have clarity on the gospel would be declaring the way and the one way to the truth. And, um, you know, I think there'll be resistors of all different stripes throughout the earth. And, uh, in fact, it speaks of, of resistors even in the last days that are neither, neither uh, reprobate nor, nor are they believers. Where, where do you stand on the uh, is a very contentious issue, and that is the, the rapture, that there will, you know, believing Christians will be spared the tribulation, they will be raptured uh, in, into heaven. There are a number of Christians who do not uh, subscribe to that idea, and, and others that do. What, what, what do you, where do you stand on that? Well, I mean, there clearly is a rapture. The question is, when does it take place? And, you know, based on several verses, but I mean, Probably one of the clearest ones is Matthew 24, verse 29, and then moving forward, Jesus makes it very clear that the rapture takes place after the tribulation. After the tribulation, but before the wrath of God is poured out on the nations. And so I believe it takes place when he returns. I believe that we will, uh, as his people, have the opportunity to bear witness to the nations um, and, and imitate Jesus and bear the cross and lay down our lives, potentially in martyrdom in those last days. Um, I don't believe there's any biblical evidence. There's not a single verse in the Bible that points to the rapture taking place before the tribulation. Uh, and finally, Joel, uh, a timeline here. I mean, how how close are we, in your estimation, uh, to the end times beginning, unraveling? 
Um, you know, this is difficult. I think sometimes you have we have a clear picture of the, of the 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 timeline of events, but it's though it's written on a a rubber band, and then the Lord kind of stretches a little, little here and there. But I believe that we, I mean, even events that that the general landscape of the last days, as described by the prophets, is profoundly coming together. And I don't say that in a sensational, hyped-up way. Um, I, you know, I think over the next several years, we're going to see profound events come together. And, you know, I'll just say it this way. If we reach 2040 and Jesus has not returned, I would be absolutely shocked. And, you know, I'll make a joke, but it's a fairly valid point, which is, you know, I was reading an article recently about how they're, they're going to have the ability to do head transplants. Yes. They're going to have artificial intelligence. You know, I mean, there's so many crazy things that we're about to achieve technology-wise that if he doesn't return soon, it is going to get awfully weird. You know, it's going to be Terminator, Transformers, you know, everything combined. And I really just don't think he's going to let it get that far. Joel, a great pleasure spending some time with you. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Joel Richardson. All right. The website for The Conspiracy Show is www.richardserrett.com. And say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Look forward to hearing from you.